My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Oh, they tell me of a home where no Dam would get full, that flash dam would get full of water. Well, he'd take some men and uh, they'd go up and go to dumping them logs into that slide and he's just like just one log right after another and they'd come down jump, jump into the river you know welcome back we are sliding into the new year with an episode all about logging i'm your host cami aarons and you're listening to it still lives the foxfire podcast where we take you on a journey through southern appalachian history one story at a time before the early 1900s the Appalachian Mountains were full of hardwood forest made up of trees that were several feet in diameter, some reaching over 15 feet wide. If you can imagine what trees would look like surrounding you in your home as you walk through the quiet woods. Early settlers cut and split these trees by hand, hewed them into the log homes that we recognize throughout the mountains today. These logs provided stable shelter they were used for furniture, and they were also important sources of food for both animals and humans. But today, all of those trees are gone. If you come up into the mountains, hike through the Appalachian Trail, maybe take a lesser known trail here in Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, you won't find any of these stands of what we call old growth forests. There's only one spot that we know of, the Joyce Kilmer Memorial Forest that still has some of these trees today. All around you now, you'll see much younger trees. These have all been planted and regrown since the area was clear cut, pretty much by the 1940s and 1950s. In a region that didn't have much industry and many opportunities to earn hard cash, as the economy shifted from a self-sustaining or trade and barter society towards one that required cash for different transactions, whether it was for your taxes or to purchase some of the food that your family desperately needed, people turned to easily accessible industries like logging. There was a high demand for logging, logs that were shipped out to the north and northeast, some even south into Florida. Here in the mountains, there was a plentiful supply of wood. And as the national forest expanded, many of those tracts of land would be sold off for timber rights. But many people who lived here would also sell their land either for timber rights or outright to logging companies. And so these companies came through, offered men jobs, women, jobs that paid cash and harvested most of the trees in this area. While there is a lot that could be said about logging and there is a very complicated history behind the practice of logging, we're just going to skim the surface today with four brief interview excerpts from oral histories conducted in 1976 on the topic of logging and clear cutting. So if you want to read more in-depth information about the technical process of logging or how um, steers were used during logging, there's a really great chapter in Foxfire 4. It comes from um, Millard Buchanan, who is not featured today, but his wife Shirley is. Millard worked as a logger. He ran his own logging camp. So he provides a lot of detailed information in that text, as well as information about how to train and break steers that were used during the logging process. You want that information that is available to you in Foxfire 4. But we're gonna look a little bit more at the um, human impact of logging and logging camps. So 
Three of the people featured today worked as loggers. One of them talks about being raised up in a logging camp. Um, one of the gentlemen actually worked as a blacksmith in a logging camp. And then we're also going to hear, as I mentioned, from Millard's wife, Shirley, who helped Millard run a logging camp a little bit later in the 1940s, late 1940s. So although these interviews were all conducted at the same time, the people interviewed weren't logging at the same time. So they provide us with a breadth of view about logging in this area. And it's all centralized in Rabin and Macon County area. Um, so first we're going to hear from Will Zellner, who was, who was older than the others interviewed. And he is the one who was a blacksmith. Uh, Will's been featured in other Foxfire publications for his expertise on blacksmithing, but also his memories of working dur during World War I. And so this snippet about his experience working in logging camps comes after his time overseas fighting um, and working essentially as a farrier during World War I. You'll notice right away um, that Will has some very strong feelings about some of the different companies that worked here in this area. He worked for Ritter for quite a long time and then worked very briefly for Georgia Pacific. And so he'll share some of those thoughts, but he'll also talk more about what the camp life looked like and, and what his work day looked like as well. A lot about it, and we were just wondering if you could tell us something about the camps and stuff, how they set them up, and uh, when they first logged into here. With like Ritter and all what, what is it about? Is it uh, connected with the Army? No, it's with Ritter, the lumber company. Oh. How they first logged all through here, how they, how they set well, up the camps and stuff. They had an overhead skitter. We got some place where you couldn't get with a cat or a team. And you put that skitter on the mountain and you had a 5,000 foot cable on it. Mm -hmm. just run the cable down the mountain, hook the logs, and that skitter would wind up the cable and bring them on up to six and eight and ten logs at a time. Well, what about before they had the skitters? How they, how they worked it then, before they had the skitters? When they well, they bought who them then. <clears throat> take six or eight great big men with peavies and roll them out where they uh, could get to them with a cat but in the wink line, 500 foot cable, they pull them that way. Mm -hmm. And the horses, we didn't have the cats, they used the horses. Yeah. Didn't you, uh, didn't you shoe the horses for the logging company? Yes. Yeah. Did, did they like set up camps for the men to stay in and work or did they just come from home every morning? No, we had bags. We moved the bags on wheels. We'd, we'd haul Hold them on the, put them on a truck and hold them to the place and put them up. Mm -hmm. Rolling kitchen, you called it. Yeah. And it was six, seven, eight. We had eight bags in the kitchen. The kitchen was in two pieces. The dining room in the, the kitchen. They built them on, on a truck. Did you ever work for Georgia Pacific? Yes. You did. When was that? I mean, was that before you worked for Ritter? A very few days. Uh -huh. I left there. There's no place for me. Uh -huh. Then you had a brain one with a short specific thing. It's never think about a man that had to sleep at night and had to have something to eat and dinner and supper. They just put him on out and let him go with it, on with it, tell you what to do, and they'll make no arrangements for you, and you can't make no arrangements out in the woods. Uh -huh. I tell you, as a as a blacksmith, what all were you? What all were your responsibilities? Everything in the world to blacksmith. Blacksmith has to do it all. Here the time table break, like breaks on the kitchen back, they sent for the blacksmith. 
You just tell you're kind of a general repair person then? Well, sure. The tools just started to make the stuff out of it and the lumber there, but there was nobody buying us there for the business. Real lumber companies, they had all that stuff fixed ahead. Did you have anybody to help you as a blacksmith? Did you no. It's just you. I could get somebody, but they didn't have nobody I could get. I was by myself there. Mm -hmm. All the others was in the woods and on trucks and stuff. I really had always had a bunch to help me. Well, when y'all went into a, uh, an area to log, when you cut the trees down, did you mark them before and then go in and cut them? You got a, you got a measuring pole. Mm -hmm. You got a 12 foot measuring pole that goes with it. And that man there don't do a thing in the wood but mark the logs. Mm -hmm. He marks them and you, the, the timber cutters cuts them. He falls the tree and he marks them off and goes on, but that time doesn't fall it. And power source comes behind and cuts them up. And they're swampers. We got some swampers there. They cut the brush away, so you can see. And uh, pick a road where they, these logs are coming out. Lots of times we'll have to take the dozer and make a road before we can get to the log. <coughs> Didn't used to do that, but when after they got on their feet, right, they took a big dozer and pushed them big boulders around and pushed the old dead logs out of the way. And mm -hmm. Did, uh, after you cut the, the trees that had been marked, did you leave the smaller trees to grow? Yeah. In the logging camp? Yeah, yeah, you don't want to cut these big trees on them little trees. Mm -hmm. You don't want to cut, uh, break more timber down than you have to. Where did the wood go after it was hauled out? Well, this, that, that's all over the world. Mm -hmm. Goes all over the United States and Europe. And that's how we went to the airport. They built an airport when we was, uh, they used them uh, seals that goes on in the airplane. A wide oak seal, second row, 24 feet long. We cut a lot of them and delivered some of them in Florida. And it seems like, like they couldn't find out, you couldn't find out too much about the, uh, about yep. the oxen, how they worked with them. Well, that's got to be a country man, man that's raised with him. Uh -huh. a, unless a man buys a yoke from a fella that never has food with him and they're well trained and the boy that's been a driving them, or a man, whoever it is, you have to get him to go with you there too. Let them kind of learn him. They'll soon catch on. What did you use to like to get the oxen to use? I knew you just talked to them, but you'd have to tell them something to go right or go left. Or yeah, go well, left. that's hauling cheese. Hauling cheese is the right and the horse is the left. Uh -huh. They'll learn that pretty well. And uh, in uh, making a short, you, you just holler, yay! And they, they go that way. Come here, haul. They go this way. They, they learn quick. Mm -hmm. That is after you get them broke. They, they'll they put the stuff until you get them broke. And you didn't need to put a bridle or no, nothing no. on them? You go ahead. Well, you got one yoke, you use lines on them until you get them tuned up. And then if it's uh, if you use more than one, you put a trained yoke ahead. Mm -hmm. And then they'll they show them what to do. They, they usually generally put the the older ones in the front and no, right. put the, put the wild trained ones in the oh. front. They don't mean anything about the age. Some of them, some of them is three year old, no more than a yoke ten year old. Mm -hmm. You take a steer that's raced. See, they usually use three yoke to, so that you can pull any tree that there is, and uh, that's what they call a team, three yoke. Well, in the middle, the lead ones has got to be perfectly trained, and the middle ones has got to be a 
heavy enough that they can hold them in there and the butts they don't make no difference they got to go where they're broke or where they ain't if they want to pull they can pull and if they don't want to pull the others will drag them yeah and you mm -hmm. go ahead and you got that grip around your neck for that it's when she's <laughs> want to play and all for shooting one and yeah. you quit and don't overload them be sure that they can pull it if they want to until mm -hmm. you get them after you get them log them a week or two why uh, all the trouble is over but don't mm -hmm. take two yoke or three yoke cattle in the rough land cliffs and rocks if you do you're going to get one killed how many logs could you pull in a train of well it depends on the ground if it's on the mountainside we pull four or five trees okay no log at all you let them saw them up and they get in the mill yard you see uh, if you take if you saw them up in the woods you've got to have a lot of uh, uh, couplings to couple them together uh, uh, what they call us well you got to have a some headers and you got to have some uh, uh, trail traps. Following Will, we're gonna take a jump into the late 40s and hear from Shirley Buchanan. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, Shirley is the wife of Millard Buchanan and Shirley helped him run a small logging camp here in Raven County. She mentions War Woman Road and that's just outside of downtown Clayton, Georgia today. So Shirley talks about the work that she had to do to help support Millard and the other people that worked for him. But she also talks a lot about the benefits of working in logging and talks about um, what a good living it was for the men who worked there. This is Kim Bond and Lynette Williams going to interview Miss Shirley Buchanan on logging. Where we lived, uh, we lived, we had these little log, we lived down here on War Woman, mm -hmm. where we was logging at. That's been, uh, that was in, uh, you see there, 1947 is when it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had 14 men, besides me and me and the children, you know. We had, uh, two ch we had two children, we had one to be born down there and one to be born the next, we had two born while we was there. Well, we uh, <laughs> lived in these big long, long camps, you know. They built them out of wood, just built them with wood. And we had our beds back here. And our, Cooks, big old well, wood cook stove here and a big old table over here, maybe a cupboard or just something other to keep dishes in, you know. We didn't have a whole lot of stuff down there. And uh, we'd get up in the morning, and, and I had this big dish pan that I made my, rope, my biscuits up in a dish pan. And I know just how much milk to put in this big quart. We had a big old container about that high, held about a half a gallon. And I put the milk in that, and then I put my flour all in the middle of this big pan and put a whole lot of shortening in that and mixed up biscuits. And I could make, oh, we had, we'd make about uh, six or eight big pans full of biscuits. And I mean, that was a whole lot of biscuits yeah. too, mm -hmm. uh, for that many men. And we'd have uh, maybe oatmeal or uh, applesauce or uh, grits or gravy and eggs and jellies and butters and all kinds of things like that, you know, to go with you. But uh, it was uh, really something to get up in the morning, you know, and have to know you had to cook all that many biscuits. And uh, they'd be good and brown too, cooking on that wood stove. You could just put them in there, you know, in just a few minutes you had a meal ready. And we usually kept um, pine knots to build the fire with, you know, and have it real, have the fire real quick with pine knots. And, and sometimes it burned some of the biscuits, but anyway, they all, all eat, you know, every one of them. And we didn't have refrigerators down there or anything. Now we had uh, just a string that went down the side of the back mm -hmm. of the house, back out in the backyard. And we kept our butter and our milk and stuff down in that stream, you know. Go out there and get it, it'd be good and cold, yeah. you know. And sometimes we'd buy, uh, when we 
like for dinner now or something. We'd buy uh, other kind of meat, you know, we, that we could keep just for a day. And we'd put it out there in that branch and, and go and get it and cook it. Sometimes they'd make cooked bologna and have this big old platters full, you know, of bologna and gravy and stuff to put on the table. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, then at night, sometimes we'd have, uh, like, uh, we'd cook fried potatoes, or we'd have green beans. And, and then the men liked onions, and we would buy onions by the bushels, you know, and fry these onions up. And they'd, they'd like a lot of fried onions. Sometimes we'd fry onions. And we cooked green beans and mashed potatoes and just anything in oil you'd mention and blackberries, made blackberry pies, you know, and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was something to cook for, for that many men, you know, to get all that food ready, yeah, get it on the table. Yeah, and everybody would come in starved to death and eat a lot. And then the kids, you know, they enjoyed getting out and picking up the pine knots and stuff and helping with the fires and stuff, you know, cooking. And then I had this, uh, this man that was, I done, didn't do all the cooking by myself because there was a, an old man that stayed with us that lived over in Waynesville. His name was Deacon Medford. And uh, he couldn't do no work. He just a little old fellow. He couldn't do no work. But he could help me in the kitchen, you know. Mm -hmm. They told me when I went down there that I'd be cooking for these men, but I'd have a woman to come in there and help me cook. Well, she didn't ever show up. I never did see the woman. But uh, Deacon come and help me. And he'd get up in the morning and help me make the biscuits and help me wash them and help me put on the coffee and stuff, you know. And they'd go out and log all day long. It was flat. The country was flat back then. And, and they'd make real good. We had some horses. One of them's named Scott, another named Harry. A pretty brown team of horses that they logged with. Mm -hmm. And they'd go out, you know, harness them up and go off and come in at lunch and eat. And then they'd go back and come in that night and eat again. And when we went to town, it's 14 miles to town now, was how far it was. And it rained down there the most of any place I know I've ever seen, except right here. <laughs> and we lived out on this dirt road. And sometimes we would have to go out in the sled to get to the highway and sled our groceries back in there to get to that. That was the muddiest place I know I've ever seen in my life. You know, the men, you see, they had places on it. We slept in this one, and then they had these little bunkhouses all the way out through there. Bunkhouses is what they was. And they was built just like ours, except they were just little, just enough for a man to, for a bed or two in, you know, was all they had in there. Did they drag them in? No, they built them and put they them there. They built them and left, but some of them still down there on, them, on that land. Some of them log camps on. Yeah. And they... And then they, they just use horses to log. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's all we had. But, well, now I know the trees they cut, they, they say they're big, but they, really they don't look all that big. Well, the trees are a lot bigger. They're a lot bigger. It was a lot bigger. It sure was. Prettiest logs you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. They're not down there now. They're all cut out. Okay. Everything's cut out. Mm -hmm. What kind of utensils did y'all have in the kitchen to cook with? Did you have... Great big old pans. Great big ones. Big old skillets, you know, for the... And I had a whole lot of the ones I use today I still use. But we had bigger ones, you know, that we put on to cook because it took a lot of food. Put a whole lot of stuff in them pots and cook. We'd buy big slabs of fat back, you know, to season with. Mm -hmm. and big buckets of lard. Everything had to be bought in a big quantity because there was a lot of us to feed. Mm -hmm. you know? What, did the company, like, send so much money for you? No, no. We done it ourselves. And then after supper, the men had their instruments outside and they'd pick and sing and play, you know. Everybody seemed to enjoy themselves, you know. They worked hard, but they, they really enjoyed it. Then you had to start right Yeah, start right back after that. By the time I got the washing done on the rub board, I washed on the rub board, you know. And I'd wash during the day and then cook, cook that meal at lunch and then cook again that evening. Mm -hmm. all, I, all I got done was wash and iron and cook and kind of keep house a little bit, you know. There wasn't much house to keep. How did, like if, how did they work the pay? Did, like, everybody get paid at the end of the week? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yes. was Millard the foreman? Yeah. Mm -hmm. was they was working for him. Mm -hmm. And they'd make real good money. Sometimes the paydays would be 
nearly two thousand dollars in the run of a week. For fourteen minutes. Yeah, that uh, you see that make he'd make all that and then he'd have to pay the men and pay the stumpage on the the timber and all that stuff out of it. Yeah, know? this was in the national forest, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. And then the uh, the Forest Service marked the trees for yeah. him to cut. And, well, how long did they work? How long did y'all stay there? I guess we was there about two or three years. I'm not sure mm -hmm. how long we was there. Our third interview is with Jake Waldrup. Jake was born in a logging camp and was raised in a logging camp, and so he shares many memories of growing up in that logging camp and watching his father work. And again, he recounts the work that his mother had to do as well, much like Shirley, caring for the logging hands um, who boarded with his family. We are gonna share just a few extra snippets from Jake over on our website. So if you are interested in hearing more about Jake's experience growing up in the logging camp, we've got some interesting details about um, what kinds of foods they ate and what sorts of activities went on in the logging camp. Um, so that's just a short few minute clip, but if you'd like that bonus content, make sure to head over to www.foxfire.org. You can use the menu feature to navigate to the podcast section. It'll be the one right at the top. Jake Waldrop about um, logging. July 14th, 1976. Well, the, uh, you never logged, did you? Practically all my life. Logged? Logged. logged. You have? Worked in the logging camp. Yeah. You did? Logged, logged, yeah. Well, I didn't know that. That's what we wanted to talk about, about the old ways of logging. Yeah, I've logged ever since I was just a, just a boy. I used, I used to help my daddy log. And then, and, and so, was it y'all's, uh, were you doing it independently, or did somebody own a sawmill and you helped them? We was uh, my daddy. He would he would uh, he would take contract, and he never did have nothing to do with the sawmilling. All right, so he would bring them down. He would. How would he get them? They'd use oxen. Use ox. Right? Use oxen. Mostly all mostly all the time. He would just use oxen. oxen. All right. Three three yoke. He always wanted three big steers. Three yoke of big steers. That'd be six. Six. Right. Six oxen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, did you all train them and break them? Pretty generally, sometimes. Why he he would buy yoke steers off of somebody of auctions. Uh -huh. But uh, we raised most of lots of them. Yeah. And uh, now there's different different styles of that logging. I know one time, why uh, he took a contract down on Nady Haley River. It's what we call the Tate Cove. Tate Cove. Tate Cove. And uh, that is just a branch come in, a big several hundred acres laid back up in there, but it's heavy timbered. And he built a slide. We built a slide he did back in there. Oh, that slide was from a half to three quarters of a mile long from the river. Now, what is that? Just like a mud? Well, he'd take, uh, he'd take, he'd take two trees. He'd just cut a whole tree down, and he'd... Uh, crib up and build them level, build his cribbing up level, and he'd put these two logs, one on one side and one on the other, and he'd hew out all the inside in there, dress them out, you know, till he's in a kind of a trough shape. And uh, he'd have landings, log landings, along up that slide. And uh, when, they'd get, when they'd get a big head of water, when that dam would get full, that splash dam would get full of water, well, he'd take some men and uh, they'd go up and go to dumping them logs into that slide and he's just like bullets just 
just one log right after another, and they'd come down, jump, jump into the river, you know, go into the river. Well, this water, this splash dam, when it come down, it got them and carried them on down to Haiti, down through the gorge, and down, down to Bushnell. Anyway, they had another had another dam down there that there they would catch these logs, and they'd take them out and take them to the mill. Who caught them and took them to the mill? Well, the company, whoever he was logging for. How much did they pay him for them? I imagine I don't know, but then it's all for cheap. I'd think somewhere's around three to three and dollars and a half a thousand. That's what he got for the most of his logs. Thousand foot. Thousand foot. Uh -huh. Yeah. And those that's, are big trees too. That's for that's the yeah, there's big trees. That is for cutting it and logging it. I've 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 helped him log, and then I've worked for other I've worked for other different logging companies. I worked for I worked for Jeanette's and I worked for Reynolds's. Now we'd we'd go back in these coals. We, you know, then we had to work ten hours a day. We would uh, in the winter time. Well, you'd have to carry your take your lantern. Yeah. You, you'd have to be up there at seven o'clock, and you stayed there till six. You know, in the winter time, why six o'clock? It's to get in dark. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would uh, we would cut them. We'd cut a tree down, and uh, the cutting crew, why well, they had uh, cut it up into logs. Anywhere from 10, 12, 14, and 16 foot logs. Well, then they had a, had they'd have two men after each saw, and they called them the brooders. 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 Yeah. Well, we would uh, we would we'd snipe that log. That is, we'd cut it around the end of it, you know, so it keeps from plowing in the ground, and we'd peel the run of it. Now, if the log log was bowed a little like that, well, you didn't peel under here. We scalped all this side off, you know, and made it slick. Then we'd turn it up on that side and hit it scoot off of that mountain. We'd drive it down to where these cattle and horses could pick it up, and they'd they'd take it on into the mill. But your your oxen were pulling them up to the slide to the slide, right? To the slide. Now when we when when when, he, when we was working the slide, well, all them was pulled into the slide with the horses. Now, how many months a year could they log? Well, every 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 month in the year, just depending on how long how big a job they had. And as long as they had this splash dam, you know, why they had to have that to move them logs on out when they'd uh, when they'd come down that slide and go into the river. What I mean, did the lumber company buy acres of land? The, the lumber co lumber company would come in and they'd either buy the land or they'd buy the timber. Timber rights, like timber. timber oh yeah, and that that gave them all exclusive logging rights. They had uh, whatever they needed to cut about building roads or anything like that while well, they had free access at it. Yeah. So can you remember what years maybe those were? Approximately, was that 1910 or 20 or before well, that? Well, it, 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 it had to be yonder. Now I know when he was doing that splashing and we was down there at Tate Cove, why, I was, I was a small boy. All I, all I could, all I could was big enough to do then. When my mother would get dinner for him, she she run the boarding the boarding house there, and he always boarded his hands. Well, I was big enough to go and help her. We'd carry out lunch for him for dinner. We'd get she'd get the dinner ready, and we'd carry the dinner back up on the tape branch where there was logging. You and your mother Me would. Me and my mother would. Yeah. Yeah. How many years did that go on, Mr. Waldrop? I mean. You know, it seems like it, all the trees would have been cut out of the mountain. Well, uh, it, it, it went on as long as I can remember. 
And I've been here, you know, I've seen several moons come and go. <laughs> and uh, it's, well, and and there's still a log in some in this country. Now, yeah. the, the Forest Service right now at the present time has shut down. They not selling any timber, any timber at all. So all they are getting, all the loggers are getting now is just private timber. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's quite a few people selling the timber off and letting them cut it. But... Uh, now I've noticed some them some coals up here that I can remember has been cut over two and three times. Well, I mean, what did they do about replanting? They didn't have back, any problems. Back 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 then they didn't have any any problems, and they don't. Uh, I don't know what they ever have done any reseeding right back here in these in this mountain country. They figure there's enough seed already in the ground to take care of that. Now, right back of me, I joined, I joined one of the oldest forest service tracks that there is in this whole section of the country in here. It's what's known as the Flatwoods. And that's, that's one, of, one of the first tracks that the forest service, when they went to bind up this land that they, that they bought. It was right back here in what's called the Flatwoods. Did you feel like when they bought it that they gave a fair price to people? Or did they sort of push people off? Or? Well, uh, they didn't. They didn't. No, they didn't. They didn't pay enough. I don't remember just what they did pay, but didn't much. I remember. I, I believe it. I remember back when they bought this land as cheap as two dollars and a half an acre. Well, did people feel like they were getting cheated? Oh, well, no. They figured. They figured. I felt like then that they were getting a pretty good price. That's a good thing. Now, uh, now, Ritters, they logged with horses. They didn't use any oxen at all. Yeah. They had horses. Right. Two two big horses to the team. And they generally have 10 and 12 teams, about 22 and 24 horses. What kind of horses? Well, there's these big draft horses. They'd go up in Ohio and Michigan and up in there and get them. And they'd, they'd get them to weigh anywhere from 1,400 to 18 and 1,900 pounds of the horse. And there'd be two of them. So you worked with the WPA? That was in the 30s, wasn't that it? That was in the 30s, yes. Yeah. And they'd, they, they'd stopped logging then. They, that, that they, they, they'd got down, they'd got down logging, they'd logged it out. You see, uh, Ritter took uh, 200 and, 210 million feet off of that 14,000 acres there in, in Nady Hayes. Mm -hmm. And to finish us off, we are going to hear from Preach Parsons. Preach's real name was Earl, but he went by Preach. He was an employee of the Forest Service for most of his life, retiring shortly before this interview was conducted. He went around between camps and checked on different operations, and he would also help mark the timber for selective cutting. His career took him from the beginning of early types of logging, so sash mills and band mills, all the way up to modern pulpwood operations and clear cutting. And you'll hear him start to talk about this at the end of the interview. He'll mention some of his opinions about clear cutting and how it's being done. And then also um, the importance of pulpwood and, and using that as kind of a crop between your major timber harvests. When first 1976 came by and Paul Gillespie, you went to interview Preacher Parsons on logging. <laughs> Well, I had some articles on, an article in the Southern Lumber of the National Magazine on the vanishing logging camps of the Southern Appalachians, but as soon as I send that to them, see, that becomes their property, uh -huh. yeah. so I just didn't get one out for you to 
to read on the thing, but... <coughs> uh, on old logging camps, mm -hmm. uh, too many people get the conception that just these little shacks out in the woods, and the logging camp took care of 100, 200 men. And that meant they had to stack it, you know, with, uh, they call them swampers, the people that clean up in the camp. They didn't call them maids. There weren't women anyhow. They were mm -hmm. old loggers. And, but they uh, swamped up. That's what they called them. And they were meticulously clean. Oh, oh boy, they were as clean as a pin. Uh, now, the, they'd get bed bugs. <laughs> because, you know, out, out in the forest and everything, and men traveling here and there with their belongings on their back, they'd bring them in. And, of course, they uh, had their different treatment for bed bugs. Uh, kerosene, all that sort of stuff, you know. But uh, they were clean, and you couldn't go in and sit on your bunker, and you didn't make your bunk. They made it. But uh, the sheets were clean. It's surprising. It, it would really surprise you now. And uh, if you just slept in there and everything, then you got out. And uh, the, one of the things about a logging camp that uh, was always interesting to me was uh, when he sat down at the tables, all those long tables, not two or three hundred minutes, you wouldn't hear a word spoken other than uh, to pass or something. <laughs> there was no idle gossip, there was nothing to talk about the day or anything. That was just a place to eat. And that was a sort of unwritten rule. And if somebody sat down and went to talking to his buddy, you know, about something, boy, they'd give him a look. You're not supposed to do that. Because you, you sat in there and you ate your food and you got out. Now they had good food, particularly the better camps. Mm -hmm. And they were proud of their food. And uh, way back there it was uh, hard to get good loggers. It was, they were scarce. So what they would do, they would entice them by, with a good camp. Loggers were proud of them. They were quite proud of them, and they had to be because that was the main attraction for secure good labor. And uh, you generally, you think of a logger, well, just common humdrum. Somebody who cuts trees. But it yeah. took an expert in every line of them. It was cutting, selling, notching, and they took pride when they fell a tree. That's cutting one day. Yeah. Uh, they could mark a spot on tree 150 feet tall, uh, they could mark a spot out there around the hill and uh, drive a little stake in the ground, they'd stick up about like that. And those experts could almost cut that tree to where it finished driving a stake in the ground. So uh, it just took people like that, you know, because they uh, couldn't split their timber, but split up, you know, shot way up with these one, two, yeah. three, number one log. And then it had to fall in a position so that, particularly logging with horses, that the horse could pull it. And they'd try to throw, they would try, not only try, but they would, they'd throw them in a position where the horse could get them and they were pointed toward uh, the way that load was going to be carried out. But anyway, the, the logging camps are gone. 
particularly in Appalachian as well, probably in some of the West. Now they just have a little five, six, seven, eight, nine men shanties. You know. That's the way the logging has been done here in the last 50 years. Just, and they use splash dams. And that was only about 1905, I believe. And they brought their uh, river rats in from Pennsylvania and Ohio. That was trained people to run logs on the river. Boy, they had to be just like a squirrel, too, you know. And they lost a lot of people in this particular room. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Uh, they uh, operated, I guess, five, six years. It wasn't too successful. They lost too many logs. But uh, they built several what they call splash dams. And uh, in below that, those splash now that's on the tributaries. Now on the main Chituk, they didn't, but oh, up Hawkins Creek, and they call it Tig River. But up Hawkins Creek, there was a couple on that creek. And what they do, they cut them off for two or three months and uh, put it in the river down below these splash dams too. Or they leave it on the bank. They just get huge piles of them. And then when the wet spell came and the rivers began to come up, even though they had this splash dam above, well then they'd roll those things uh, and they would dry a certain amount, you understand, you know, being on the bank there. They'd roll those things in the riverbed and then open this splash dam above it and with the freshet that was already on, say, that would take it down to the main to the river. And uh, all that aims to drive uh, a couple million feet at a drive. That's a lot of logs, too. Mm -hmm. And then they rode those uh, logs and floated those logs down below to call. Down in there someplace, I don't know the name of the little town where they picked them up and saw them. Had booms across the river and would stop the logs yeah. and take them out. But once they started, they had to keep going. There wasn't any things such as quit. They had relief crews, but those crews were going all the time. They had to follow them with uh, food, sleeping, things, and everything else. So the thing went through. Well, back in, uh, I guess, the 40s, I was speaking with uh, Shirley Buchanan about the logging camp that her and her husband ran, Miller. I guess you know Miller Buchanan. Oh, the uh, cordwood we call it. Really? Hardwood or something? Hardwood. Yeah. I can say Probably that. Hardwood. Hardwood. Yep. Uh -huh. they, were, they were at a logging camp, and she mentioned that you had been down there to eat dinner with them, you know, at the camp before. And their camp, from what I understood from a lot of other people I've talked to, was rather small. She said they only had about 15 men there. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, they didn't have many men. Of course, Raven County, it was good timber. They had some awful good timber. Would you say that the logging done then was, was done, that the logging was done right, even, even though I know a lot of the, a lot of the big trees, are all, well, all the big trees are gone, practically. Uh, should, should they have cut everything like they did? Uh, well, now that we're... <laughs> We're mixing it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. With uh, those logging companies, they cut and they had these overhead skidders and they were mounted up, you know, and then they'd pull them way up 200 feet and take them over on cables. 
people. Uh, that's the big jobs. Yeah. And they just cut a tree down, they just swipe everything. Everything was just laid like this. And then they took the most choice timber. Yeah. But at the same time, they didn't do anything uh, to bring the timber back. Oh. And at the same time, too, uh, then after it all got slashed that way, then the fires would come along, yeah. particularly in hardwood. That's where it did damage. Then it would burn everything. And there wasn't, before 1905, which is Forest Service was born, and there wasn't much fire protection. Now, surprisingly enough, we think uh, big trees and little acorns grow. Well, they do. But our forest comes back from root sprouting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It comes back from root sprouting. I, I got that from Mr. Berry. I've never had realized And uh, uh, because it's taller, and when this acorn sprouts, it has a canopy over it. When that sun can't get to that tree, it's just going to stand there. It'll stand there. Mm -hmm. And these sprouts that are left, like this from this down, inch down, that's what makes your future timber in hardwood. That's the only way to grow timber is clear cut and grow you another crop and then harvest it. Now that isn't a one deal operation. You clear cut today in the pine, and maybe you're going to wait 70 years for your final cut the next time. But in the meantime, as this timber grows, you're going to begin to thin it for pulpwood, and that's lumber too, you know. That's well, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you joining us for this first episode of It Still Lives Season 5. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, there is a ton more content to be had in Foxfire 4, um, more than I could possibly share on this short podcast. So if you want to learn more about logging in the area, I definitely recommend you checking out that book. Um, it'll provide a lot of great historical perspective on different aspects of the logging industry make sure to head to our website because we'll be sharing some photographs, some historic photographs of logging in this area. And we'll also provide, as I mentioned, that bonus content from Jake Waldroop, sharing a few extra memories about growing up in a logging camp. We'll be back at you next month with more great content. Um, as always, we love to hear from you. Make sure to reach out to us on social media. We are at Foxfire.org on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also email us at foxfire at foxfire.org. We want to hear your suggestions, what you want to see in this upcoming year, what you've enjoyed in the past. All of that helps us bring more good content to you as well. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our newsletter. We will be announcing our programming for 2023 in just a few short weeks. So you want to make sure to be the first to hear about all of the great things that are coming your way from Foxfire, from our book release in uh, March, that's the Foxfire Book of Appalachian Women, to events like Heritage Day and the Hammerin and other great classes that will be happening throughout the year. You can find all of that, again, on our website at www.foxfire.org. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy New Year, and we'll see you all next time. Take care. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. Yeah. <laughs>